You're listening to 101.9 FM, KPCRLP, Santa Cruz. Tony Duchesne here, and welcome to episode 155 of Drinks with Tony with my guest, Hilma Wallitzer. Check out her new book, Today a Woman Went Mad in the Supermarket. And as you'll hear in our interview, she's 91 years old, and her first novel was published when she was 44. Writers, get ready to be inspired by a great author. Hi, I'm Hilma Wallitzer, and I'm on Drinks with Tony. Get on the Drinks with Tony show. You're listening to Drinks with Tony. I'm your host, Tony Duchesne. Today on the show, we have Hilma, Hilma Wallitzer. She's the author of Today, A Woman Went Mad in the Supermarket, a collection of stories. Hilma, how are you? I'm good. Thank you, Tony. What's it like going through stories that you wrote in the 70s and 60s? What's it like revisiting that? It was surprising. I almost forgot that I'd written them. Yeah. And uh, yet I recognize my voice. I don't think it's changed that much. There are a few more uh, there are a few more contractions now. I'm a little less formal, maybe fewer adverbs, but mostly I think my worldview has not changed dramatically. I mean, I've evolved, obviously, I, at least I hope so. But uh, I think that my voice is my fictional voice is pretty much the same. No, it's funny. I th- I mean, it's it's tr- funny and true, but I I believe that's with all great authors that the voice never really changes. We, we, we learn our craft more. We find ways to like really, you know, we, we, we learn devices to use with our characters and such, but our voice never really, um, our voice is our voice. We can't get away from it. It's like our fingerprint. I know it, it really is true. Uh, the world changes though. And you're, and then therefore you have to let the world into your stories a little bit, or they'd be very claustrophobic. Yeah, that's um, yeah, exactly. And as a world collective, we're all kind of shifting, so everyone shifts a little bit. But yeah, it's quite is, different is, today, isn't it? Yeah, it is. Was what was um, as you were look uh, as you as you look at your stories from the sixties and seventies to now? Does it did it uh, wait? Was it did, was it kind of cool to just really go back in time in a way? Yeah, because in the stories. Uh, I was really surprised to realize there were no cell phones, there were no computers. And to my shock, the women in those stories don't seem to have any careers, which is pretty much the way I was when I wrote them. I was a housewife and I was very happy with my domestic life, but I also felt some restlessness, some desire to have something more. And by writing about the domesticity, I was able to get more. I had a career as a writer. And the, and the, the writing bug, you know, I feel like it runs deep. You know, it's, it's like for writers, we can't not write. I'm a really crappy person if I don't write. The, the, the main reason I write is so I'm not crappy to people in real life. I'm, I have to be, <laughs> <laughs> I don't, be mean not, to them on the page, right? Right, exactly. <laughs> it's true. I started... I'm a late bloomer because I published relatively late in life. My first novel came out when I was 44, but I was writing bad poetry when I was nine years old. And and what and do you remember nine years old and thinking that you were writing the greatest poetry in the world? 
Oh, of course, of course. <laughs> and, and there was some validation. Um, my household was not literary. My parents played cards a few nights every week, but they had respect for creative endeavor. And my mother and father would invite me to come out and recite some of my poems for the card players who couldn't have cared less. I mean, all they cared about was dealing out the next hand, but they listened politely and they even applauded. And that was the beginning of getting attention as a writer. But as we all realize, not all attention that a writer gets is positive. Yeah. So you stick with it for that reason. What, what did your parents do? What, what, who, who were their people they were hanging out with playing cards? What, what was their... Uh... Oh, people in the garment district, furriers, uh, dress cutters. My mother was... My father had a little shop uh, where he manufactured dresses, uh-huh. but he wasn't even a dress manufacturer. He was just a dress contractor, which means the manufacturer parceled out work to him. So he was a, a little guy. And my mother was a housewife who raised me to be a housewife. What, what, where in the, uh, where was your, uh, your father's um, office? Where was his store? It was a storefront uh, factory in Brooklyn, where yeah. I grew up. You may have noticed from my accent. Yeah, yeah. What part I of Brooklyn? I can't really fake it anymore. I'm too oh, old. Did you try to fake it? No. Good. No. And, and my children keep pointing it out to me. They said it's getting more pronounced. And yet I've been out of Brooklyn for years. I mean, I live in Manhattan, which is much more sophisticated, but I uh-huh. can't, I can't dump this Brooklyn accent. <laughs> it's a, it's a big thing that, especially back uh, in those days, the Brooklyn accent versus the Manhattan accent. Is that, is that, is that right? I don't know. I hardly ever went to Manhattan as a child. It yeah. seemed like another country. Wait, and uh, where were you at in Brooklyn? Uh, I grew up in Bensonhurst, and then after my husband and I got married, we lived in Flatbush. Oh wow, cool! And and the, and then uh, and your husband was cool with you writing. This this was probably not the easiest thing for a fella um, to be like. My wife's a writer, or was your husband just totally cool with it? Well, he wasn't totally cool at first. Uh-huh. Uh, I had contracted to be a housewife, to be a wife and a mother to make these fancy jello mills, to uh, make dinner parties for his colleagues and their wives. And suddenly I was doing something else. And at first he was a little startled by it, but then he began to respect it. And I began to count on him as my human thesaurus, my built-in thesaurus, because when I couldn't think of a word, uh, and I really miss this terribly as I miss him, he would just fill in for me. And as you get older, of course, you lose words anyway. So any couple we know have to fill in for each other. I mean, my husband and I, if we couldn't think of a name, one of us would come up with the first name and the other one would come up with a second name. Yeah. I, so it, we were a team in that way. Was that like at dinner parties too, where someone comes up to you and, they, they, and they're like, oh my God, and they say both your names. And then you're like, what was the first name? What was the last name? <laughs> Right. And who are you? Somebody <laughs> would come up and say, how are you? And you're thinking, who are you? Yeah. And I would tell my husband at um, book parties where people had name tags. And of course, I'm pretty tall. So I'd have to bend down to look at their name tags. And that wasn't too cool. So I would tell him, don't ever wait for me to introduce you. Just yes. say your name so I can hear theirs. 
stick out your hand and introduce yourself so I can hear their names. I mean, it's, it's really bad. I think a lot of writers have good memories about very good memory when it comes to their characters and the plot line, but very poor memory in the real world. It's strange. I, I've, I find that too. And usually I like with, when I'm hanging out with people and I go, and someone comes up to, if I'm hanging out with a group and someone comes up to me, he's like, Hey, Tony, and gives me a big hug. And I have no idea who they are. And then I'll just be like, and then what I'll do is I'll take someone from the group and I'll be like, Hey, 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 Tim, dude, uh, I just, I want you to meet Tim. And I would, I'll just like, and then, so hopefully Tim will go, hi, my name's Tim. What's yours? <laughs> exactly. Exactly. And, and at bookstores, uh, people sometimes, sometimes in the old days used to line up with books to be signed and there'd be somebody I knew and I couldn't remember his name oh. and I had to describe it to him. So I would very cleverly say, how do you spell that again? And he would say, B-O-B. <laughs> and then you're like, oh no, I just, I wasn't sure. Cause sometimes there's two B's, you know, at the end. Right. Of course. <laughs> I want to get it right. Oh, that's so much fun. So, and so when you're writing and you're in Brooklyn, which now you, you throw a stone in the air and you'll hit a writer in Brooklyn. Right. I mean, in those years, it wasn't that it wasn't like that. Well, I didn't know any writers in Brooklyn and I didn't know any writers in Flatbush. And then when we moved to Long Island after that, to the suburbs, uh, there was not, there wasn't even a, a bookstore in the town we lived in. And I had never met another writer until I finally went to my first writing workshop in the city at the new school. And that's where I first met other writers. Now, practically everyone I know is a writer. Yeah. What, um, that, that must have, I, did you feel isolated or did it not even, did it not even come up as a feeling? Cause you just knew you were a writer and this, and you're kind of an, an outsider in the world. Well, I didn't feel isolated. I didn't know what I was missing. And also, uh, when you're writing fiction, you have so many characters in your head that you don't feel alone at all. They're talking to you all the time. And I think about this now when I try to write. Um, when I first started writing seriously and sitting at the kitchen table with a typewriter, with the children and the dog, and my husband at the opposite end typing out patient reports, he was a psychologist, uh, and it was chaotic. And yet I didn't mind. And then I began to mind. I began to be very neurotic about needing quiet and my own space. Well, now I have it. I'm alone. I'm widowed. I'm living all by myself in a high rise. And I think some of that chaos is still in my head. And then the characters come in and keep me company. Wow. The... Um... It's, it's, it's so, I get this too, in weird ways where I'm like chronically dissatisfied. Like, so if I can have, I'm like, all I need is quiet. I need to just be alone. And then when I'm alone, I'm like, wait, I need people around. Where's the noise? Or if I'm, or if I'm in New York city, I'm like, oh my God, I just want to get out of here and get back to California. And then I'm back in California. I'm like, all I want to do is leave California and get back to New York. It's just, um, I, I don't know if you had it's I, I kind of always fight it. this. It's just human restlessness. I think we always want something else, something more. We're curious about what's going on somewhere else. I want to be back on the L train and smashed in trying to get from Manhattan to Brooklyn. And, well, you know, I can't say I miss the rush hour. <laughs> yeah. They, and, the, and the gropers on the subway. I, but, I can't say I miss that. Yeah. The, um, 
what do, do when you were taking this up? I mean, are the, the groper is a new thing to me, one, because I didn't get groped. And may, that might be because I need to go. I need to work out more and, you know, wear better fitting clothing. But um, wait, are there are, are there a lot of gropers still on the subway? Yeah, I, I don't know. I haven't been on a subway for a while. OK, but pre-COVID. I haven't been, I haven't been to too many places since the pandemic, unfortunately. Yeah. It's so strange how everything was. Yeah, especially New York. I, I was in New York in 2019 and I was excited and going, I think I could, I want to try to spend half my time here. And then all of a sudden it's just like, no, you're stuck where you live for a while. <laughs> yeah, it was up. very, very bad here for a while. And uh, when it first hit, my husband and I both came down with it uh, oh. very early in the pandemic. Yeah. And I was already being careful. I, I had received some early warnings about it and had been reading about it. Uh, I don't think he took it quite as seriously as I did. And uh, he did do a couple of things that I think contributed to his contracting it, which was really awful. He was very, very sick. And I had to call an ambulance for him. And, and the circumstances of, of that kind of illness and that kind of death were very different. I mean, we were already 90 years old and you expect that one of you is going to die pretty soon in, in the fairly near future when you're in your 90s. Um, and you expect it and you, um, you're not looking forward to it, but you think it's part of the natural course of events. What isn't natural is the strangeness of dying alone without anyone you love near you, without anyone seeing you off, without anyone consoling your loved ones afterwards, uh, without the people who loved you being with each other afterward. That was very strange. And that's what I tried to convey in the final story in the collection, which is that he vanished. He just didn't, he didn't just die, which I knew he did, but he vanished and I never had a chance to say goodbye. You know, when the paramedics came and took him away, they were calling out instructions to me, all of us masked at that point, too late. Um, they were calling out instructions, get his phone, get his charger, get his pajamas. And I found myself running down the hallway after them toward the elevator. And I never said anything, I never touched him. I never said goodbye and he was gone. And um, he deteriorated continually in the hospital. And two days later, I realized I had COVID as well and was hospitalized about eight days later. And he died two days before I came home. And then you come home to a household. And I never thought that the rituals of mourning uh, were that important. I didn't really think that I'd want to have a lot of people coming over eating sandwiches and talking about him and patting me on the back and hugging me and, or having a funeral and I realized that that absence was parallel to his absence. And I think that writing about it was a new way of mourning. It allowed me to think about it in a very different way. And, and writing it down was like talking about it with friends and family. It's, yeah, I just... It's my, it blows my mind, the people that had to say goodbye to their loved ones on FaceTime 
with, you know, in a hospital um, on a phone. They, there was some of the last words that were said because they couldn't be in the same room well, with them. We didn't them. do FaceTime. We did talk mm-hmm. on the telephone. We were in different mm-hmm. hospitals, which was bizarre yeah. enough. Um, and I, I did much, I fared much better. Obviously I survived and um, he needed somebody to hold the phone next to his ear and he was on oxygen. So yeah. between my hearing and his oxygen mask, things didn't go, I'm not sure I heard everything he said. But we did say some important things to each other, but we didn't do it in recognition of it being the end. Neither of us really acknowledged that. I know he didn't. In the story, I talk about the husband telling her what he had for dinner, which is exactly what my husband did. His oxygen levels were sinking, and yet he was talking about you know, something like how tough the chicken was. And, and it was sort of, it made me feel better. It was like things were going to be okay, even though I suspected they weren't going to be. How long were you married? 68 years. Wow. <laughs> oh my God. That is, that's a success story right there. I know. It's a very long time. And, um, and I'm grateful for that. But I'm also greedy. I wanted more. It's, you know, when, I mean, and I was married and I got divorced. I was married for a while, but, um, you know, it's, uh, and, and unfortunately the divorce needed to happen. I didn't know yeah It's, you know, but when you get married, you, you just think this is the person I'm going to take it to the end with, you know, and in my mind, I've always, you know, I, even when I was younger and was married, I always assumed this was going to be the person that one of us is going to be saying our dying words to, you know, it's like, it was almost I was pre-planning in my twenties and thirties, but it's to a point where it's just like, it was almost a comfort where you go that that's, that part's taken care of in my life. You know, there's a wonderful poem by uh, Howard Nemeroff. And he asked the question, was it a good marriage? And the final line is one should be watching while the other one dies. That's what makes a marriage good. And even though we didn't literally, we weren't literally together. I wasn't watching him dying. We were still married. We were still a partnership when he died. Even though the circumstances were less than satisfactory. Yeah. What what do you attribute the longevity of your marriage to? Because I know people, even when they were, even who who were married in like the 60s and 70s, they they couldn't make it all the way through. What, what was, what's your secret? I'm asking. How do you oh, do it? <laughs> I, I'm, not, I'm not sure. I think it's, of course, compromise is the easy thing to say. Um, our love for our children and for each other. Um, there are always difficulties in every marriage. It never is a smooth course. And you expect that. And you learn to just get over those bumps in the road and go on. Uh, another quote, Samuel Beckett, I can't go on, I'll go on. I mean, that might be a good uh, motto about marriage. I can't go on, I'll go on. Yeah. I, it's interesting um, when you say compromise, uh, I just had the thought of, it's almost like compromise, but also respect at the same time. It's, it's not just like giving in to 
what the other person needs. It's like, okay, you need that. And I need this. We can come together here. And we both are, we both get respected in our, uh, in what we need from each other and in life. And in old age, um, a lot of physical things come up, illnesses, uh, disabilities, and you learn to adjust to them. My bad hearing, his bad walking. Um, it's almost funny, except it isn't really. But, yeah. but we, did, we did laugh about it. Um, he walked with a walker and I sometimes would say, can you go any slower? <laughs> he wasn't always amused, but he didn't yeah. really get angry either. And he's like, what? I can't hear you. Yeah. So well, that's the famous joke. Rose, what's the name of that flower with the thorns? You know, uh-huh. <laughs> um, I never heard that joke. So that, that's that's my first time. That was the short it. version of that joke. OK, well, you did a good job on it. <laughs> with the, um, so where, where do you what neighborhood are you in in Manhattan? How long did you and your husband? I'm on the there? Upper East Side yeah. in a rental which is a little bit like being buried in a rented tuxedo. (laughs) Rents keep going up. And, but I like the building. I like the people who work here. Uh, My neighbors come and go, which is a little strange. I grew up in a neighborhood in Brooklyn where everyone lived on the same street forever until they were carried off. Uh, It's a little different in a rental apartment in the city where uh, people change continually, especially younger people who come into the city, then have a couple of kids and move somewhere else. Yeah. Do you have rent stabilization then? It's stabilized, but that is not that wonderful, actually. Oh, okay. Not rent controlled. And there's a very big difference. Oh, okay. But um, what, what was the decision to move from Brooklyn to Manhattan then? Because that had to have been pretty racy if you're leaving your hood in Brooklyn to, to go well, to the city. At that point, we weren't leaving Brooklyn. We were leaving Long Island. And Long oh. Island was very pleasant. And I remember we moved there and my younger daughter, who was kind of a hip kid, said to me, why are we living here? She longed for the city. And I said, we moved here for the grass. And she said, mom, it's the wrong kind of grass. <laughs> So uh, I began to feel that real life was in the city, Uh, a less homogeneous group of faces around me all the time, Um, the excitement of seeing people going by. I mean, if you live in the suburbs, if anybody walked past your house within an hour, it was because there was an emergency Uh (laughs) on the street. Uh, and I love, I love, I open my window, I'm on the 18th floor and I look down and I see, you know, all these people and cars and buildings. And it's, it, to me, it's very exciting and it feels, it feels like real life. Yeah. My, my thing uh, is I like to be in, in, the, in the middle of it, but kind of a way of it. But I, like, if I want to go see a theater, uh, go to the theater, or if I want to see a comedian, I don't want to make a night of it. I don't want to, it doesn't want to be a big thing. It's something where I can just go drop in and go, Oh, wow, that was great. And go home. 
where when I didn't live in the city or if I lived in the suburbs, it was like, we need to make a night of this. It's, it's a, a big trip. thing. Yes. Yeah. It's, it's a journey. And I don't like, I don't want a journey. I just want to pop out, check out, check out something cool and then be home, you know, before uh, 11. Right. And your travel time sometimes is longer than the actual event that you're attending. <laughs> yeah. I grew up, I grew up uh, in the suburbs of San Francisco, very close to the, uh, where the San Francisco Giants played. And it didn't dawn on me that not every major city had a, had a, a baseball team. I just assumed all my life that everyone had baseball teams that it's, I didn't realize how, how kind of privileged I was to, oh, to me be. Me too. I was a big Dodger fan as a child, even because uh, my father and uh, my dearest uncle were ardent Dodger fans. Before television, they would be listening to the games on the radio. And because I loved being with them, sitting between these two beloved men, uh, I became a baseball fan, an ardent baseball fan. And now I'm a Mets fan, unfortunately, as they sink <laughs> this season. But I never miss a game. I tape them. And if anybody tells me the score before I've had a chance to watch it, I'd like to kill them. <laughs> <laughs> Giants just played the Mets. I know, I know. And I apologize. I apologize. Thank you. Thank <laughs> you. I'll accept your apology. But I can't accept them dropping to seven and a half games out when they were in first place and pretty high up. I think they were four or five games up. And and, and in your in the East Coast, Tampa Bay's like in first place, right? I'm not sure. I don't I don't pay attention to the um to who's Who's in front anymore? Who's on yeah. first? I was going to say I sound like Abbott and Costello, um, but I know where my team is, and they're yeah. not in the right place. Yeah. Um, but I still like watching the games. There's something so beautiful about the games. I love the suspense. I love the choreography of it. I love looking at those gorgeous young guys, and <laughs> it's just fun. And it's also has something to do with a sense of optimism. Um. They didn't win this game, but maybe they'll win the next one. They didn't win this season, but maybe they'll win next season. And think, it's oh, pretty foolish to be so optimistic at 91, but I am. I'm, I'm, I just look forward to things and I'm curious. And I think this is really the reason I write and the reason I read and the reason I want to keep living is I want to find out what happens next. That's the whole, that is everything. I've been thinking about this so much, even during COVID, because in COVID, I mean, I, I came into some of my dire thoughts, you know, I'm, I'm living alone. There's, it's complete lockdown and it's, and there's, there's despair and there's times where we're in utter despair, but in the end, it's like, wait a second. I need to know how the story ends. I need to know what the next chapter is. We may never know how this particular story ends. Uh, it's very odd. I was alone and I felt, I didn't really feel, I was isolated, but I didn't really feel alone. I feel that everybody in the world is in this terrible mess we're in now. Everybody is. And that there's a large community uh, who are dealing with this particular pandemic. And so in that sense, I felt like I was part of something. And, and it made me feel less alone. Yeah. When, 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 when everyone's having a problem, then, then is there really a problem when it's the whole 
human humanity. <laughs> right. I mean, you can hardly complain about, you know, your broken fingernail uh, right. in, in the midst of a pandemic. And you can you don't feel as sorry for yourself as you might do if you were struck down by a particular illness when all around you, the community was well. Then you might feel um, a little more sorry for yourself. Uh, and actually, though it was very sad for me that I lost my husband, I survived, which is in itself a kind of miracle at my age. Yeah, yeah. It's uh, losing, I mean, well, I guess uh, you don't lose love. It's just sometimes love hurts. Like love hurts even when things are going well sometimes. Well, because you're aware that they're not going to stay well forever. Yeah. We all, you know, we have this, illusion i call it a delusion really uh-huh. that everything's going to just keep going on it's just this ordinary beautiful boring world it's just going to keep continuing but of course it's not it's not for you certainly or anyone else um i just read a wonderful line somewhere where uh a woman is in childbirth and she's in trouble her her delivery is in trouble and the doctor says 150 years ago you would have been, you'd be dead by now. If, if this were 150 years ago, you would be dead by now. And she said, so would everybody. <laughs> and the doctor doesn't even seem to get it. Yeah. It's a wonderful moment in literature. Wow. Um, <clears throat> sorry, I, I see, I, you're telling me such great stories. I'm trying to, I'm like, oh yeah, I should ask her that. And then my mind goes blank. Oh, so. my mind goes blank. A little too often, I must say. But I have a good excuse. You're still a young man. <laughs> um, oh yeah, it's uh, it was interesting that you that you said that um, you were a late bloomer as a as a novelist at 44, which actually I don't feel like is a late bloomer. I teach writing, and some of these some of these people that come to my uh, novel workshops, they're like, "Oh my God, I'm 25. I'm over the hill on this," and I'm like. That's that's when I that's when I kind of pull out the big guns and go. You know what? You're not a, a, a novelists are not underwear models. We don't. Yeah, we, we don't even have to have good legs. Exactly. And, <laughs> but when you're 44 and you're first publishing, you feel as if uh, you are a late bloomer. And I have my marvelous writing daughter Meg, who published her first novel when she was 22, exactly half the age I was, but she did it a different way. She became a novelist, wrote her successful books, and then got married and had children. I got married at 22, had the children, had the marriage and the children and domestic life on which I drew, but I did it the other way. So therefore, it took me a a long while to get published. And I think both of those have their positives and negatives because, you know, I don't have kids, but it would have been kind of cool to have kids. And I so there's there's a beauty in focusing on your children for a while. And there's also a beauty of getting things done before the kids come along. I have no answers to this. You've actually experienced it. So you can tell me where I'm wrong. Well, I don't think you're, there's a right or wrong to this. Uh, I have friends who have chosen not to have children and are perfectly happy, except that they wish they had grandchildren. They don't you go straight children. to the grandchildren. How do yeah. we go straight to the grandchildren? Right. That you know, is... Well, they say that the reason um, children and uh, 
grandmothers and grandchildren love each other so much is because they share a common, common enemy. <laughs> I don't, I, that's really not true in my family. Have you asked your grandchildren that? My kids that? are great. I have two <laughs> wonderful daughters and two wonderful grandsons. So I'm very lucky with that. Yeah. And that's, and it's, it's great that your daughter went on to uh, also become a writer. Uh, was, was she inspired by you growing up or how did she choose her? How did her path come along? Well, she's just a natural talent. You'd have to ask her how much I inspired her. And my older daughter, Nancy, is a wonderfully inventive artist. And I started out as a visual artist. So both of my kids are doing things that I started doing first. And it's a great compliment to a parent when the child does this. But I don't think they're emulating me. I think they're just um, using their own natural talent, their own impulse to create. And, and what did your husband think about when his kids are becoming artists? Oh, I think he was very happy about it. and very proud of them always. Um, our house is full of Nancy's drawings and paintings and our shelves are full of Meg's books. Oh, how many books does she have? Meg? Probably more than I do at this point. And this is my 15th. Uh-huh. But I think she's, she's gone ahead. And I always say, when people say the apple doesn't fall far from the tree, I say this apple fell and then took wings and rose up above <laughs> the tree. And that's fine. It's, it's such a wonderful thing when your children are successful and happy. When did, um, when, when, your, when Meg's first book came out, what was it like on the day of publication? Did you go to the publication release party? Did you go to the, um, did you go to her event where she was reading? We celebrated everything. Yes. <laughs> everything that any of our kids did from graduation to publication parties to birthday parties. Um, we just enjoyed all of that so much. Both of us, my husband and myself. Oh, that's wonderful. I, and I, I remember uh, when I published my first book, we had a little dog, we had a little dachshund. And Meg, I'm trying to think of how old she was when I was 44. She was, I was 29 when she was born. You do the math. 15. She may have been about 15. Yeah. She, said, she tied a, a, a note around the dog's neck and said, go to mommy, go to mommy. And I, the dog came running in because he was very intelligent. And I pulled off the note and it said, oh, you lucky dog. <laughs> so you can see she was already a writer yeah yeah well uh, when did she become serious as a writer do you remember yeah she was 11 she published okay. a short story when she was 11 in a children's magazine and called kids magazine and not only did she publish the story but she was invited to be a guest editor and we were living in the suburbs and we took the Long Island Railroad into the city. And I sat in the waiting room like a stage mother while she sat in an office on the phone interviewing celebrities. <laughs> it was quite funny. Well, it, do you, uh, was she embarrassed? Is there a celebrity that she was totally starstruck with that she kind of was like, oh my God, mom, I just talked to. No, she wasn't that way. Um, but. Uh, it was interesting. Her idea of celebrity included movie stars and writers, and she drew portraits on the inside of her bedroom door, which I wish we had taken off its hinges and kept. I think we have a photograph of it somewhere. And she had drawings she did of Alfred Hitchcock and Virginia Woolf. I mean, in the same panel. 
I don't think they ever met, actually. Only on her closet door. Right. Only on my daughter's bedroom door. <laughs> when, so when, so you, uh, you stayed in Brooklyn and then was it like, let's go to Long Island for the kids so the kids can have more space? Well, or? partly for that grass and mm-hmm. partly because my husband got a job out there. He was working in the city school system as a psychologist and he got a job out in Mineola. So uh, we got a map of that particular area and drew a circle with a particular circumference and try to find a house that we could afford uh, in that area. And we did, we could barely afford it. And uh, we moved, it was very exciting. And I think because she was so young, we were so young that you just don't fear the consequences of this, like bankruptcy, uh, not being able to pay your mortgage. We just felt we'd make it and we struggled and then when I began to write, I saw, I didn't even have a car when we were living in the suburbs. My husband had the car, the family car, which was an old Chevy, which he bought on the street from somebody. And I had to walk the kids to the supermarket and carry the bundles on the back of the stroller. And then I sold this first short story and I got enough money to put a big down payment on a car. And I thought I was going to be rich. And I had sold it to a major, to the Saturday Evening Post, which was a national magazine. And I thought, gee, if I write a story a week or a story uh-huh. a month. <laughs> and one of my husband's witty friends said, you'll have a fleet of ramblers. But I didn't sell another story for three years. And then it was to a very small, prestigious literary magazine. And I got 10% of what I got for the story to the Post. And I realized... I'm not in this for the money, which yeah. was just as well. It's uh, we can't be. It's uh, it's crazy because writing is writing is you know it's part of the career. Writing is just such a crapshoot. We don't know, and e- even established authors they don't know if the next book can get published. There, there's there's you don't kind know of, anything, and you don't you know, know if there are three people somewhere in the Bronx writing your novel at the same time, writing something about the same subject at the same time. When my first novel came out, uh, I was interviewed, believe it or not, by Newsweek and Time. Time ran the review and Newsweek sent me the review, which was stunning. I mean, it was just a wonderful review, but they canceled it because Nixon resigned that week. Nixon is an idiot. Yeah, he screwed up your publishing career. Right. I used to like him and now I hate him. Yeah, I'm afraid I never liked them. <laughs> you know that uh, it's all oh, is that's brutal. That's so brutal. Yeah, that hurt, but it was a pleasant kind of pain because I still had that very nice review tucked into a drawer somewhere. Did they? No, it didn't go to print. They, they, you just had the review, right? Right, and and of course there was no online public publishing right. these days. I'm still stunned by that when somebody tells me that something is about to be published, a review is about to be published. Uh, I might look for it on the newsstands, but it's not, it's online. And online just doesn't seem as important to me. And my kids keep saying, mom, it's more important. More people go online than will open, buy a magazine and read it. And I can't get my head around that yet. I guess I'm just too old and too old fashioned. No, I, so I, I kind of think the same way. One of the first, um, 
full page articles I wrote about uh, I did an interview with Miranda July for drinks with Tony. And then I, and then I pitched it to then this was kind of before magazines were automatically online. And I pitched it to a bunch of regional uh, publications and the Las Vegas weekly picked it up. Wow. And so, um, and it was a full page, but I could, I couldn't get it. I had to ping all of my friends to be like, Hey, who can send me a copy of the Las Vegas weekly? And it was, uh, and someone sent me three copies of the Las Vegas weekly. And I don't think it ever made it online. You know, this was probably 2004, but, um, but there, but there was something so cool that it was a full page in Las Vegas. And I, and I think the online versus the um, print that at the time, the population of Las Vegas, I know a lot of them open up that Las Vegas weekly because that's where they got their information. And a lot of them saw this full page article. Whereas if it was all, if it was today, they're scrolling for their phones. They're Those not even kids with their nimble fingers. Uh, it's, yeah. it's, and my father would say it's a new America. It really is so different and I'm excited about it. And actually I'm the, te- I was the techie in our family. Yeah. I had to send my husband's email for him as brilliant and educated as he was. He couldn't handle the internet. It's probably due to his brilliance and education. Cause it's just like, I, I'm, he's already, expanding his knowledge on what he knows he's like why do i need to tackle this new technology when i'm already focused on what i'm doing right exactly makes sense yes he was a psychologist so so did he have did he have patients was there a oh he did he was a clinical psychologist Uh he had an office out on long island but then he got too old to drive that far at night and so he had to retire how many years was he a psychologist for? Oh, I can't count them. A number of years. Yeah. And I have to say, I didn't want him to retire because as a writer who had gotten used to being an erotic writer who needed to be in a cork-lined room, uh, it was a little hard to deal with this and to deal with his being around all the time. And he would say things like, without thinking about it, he would say, are you going to be typing today? And he didn't even, I realize now how funny this was, but he didn't mean it to be funny. Uh, he heard the sound of my typing and that's what got to him. Um, and now of course, uh, and he also was a big jazz aficionado and he used to listen to a lot of jazz and play it pretty loudly on the stereo. And I would be closing the door to the room where I was working. And now I miss it. And at the memorial service we had for him, we played some of his favorite musicians. He played sax and clarinet himself. Did he? Did he? Did yeah, he, he moonlighted did he? sometimes at bar mitzvahs and weddings. Yeah, that's played, awesome. When he was a kid, he played in the Bosch Belt. Huh. Did when you when you uh, when you youngins were dating? Did he take you to jazz clubs or such? Oh, we did that all the time. We used yeah. to go to uh, what's the Dixieland Jazz? Um, uh-huh. it was, I can't think of his name. This this is the problem. I need to ask him, yeah. and he's not here. Yeah. He's the only one I could ask. Yeah. Uh, we used to Eddie Condens, Eddie Condens uh-huh. down 
downtown and we used to go to a lot of jazz clubs and listen. And even when we were older, the new school had a series of jazz sessions and we subscribed to them. And all the people there, they, all these old gray and white heads nodding along to the music, it was really amazing. That was the real audience for that kind of jazz. And I remember my husband was just thrilled because Coleman Hawkins, uh, my gran our older grandson, that was Coleman Hawkins was his favorite. And my older grandson, our older grandson was born on Coleman Hawkins' birthday, November 21st. And he was so pleased by that. Yeah. And we actually, we heard, saw and heard Ella Fitzgerald in concert really toward the end of her life. And that was thrilling and she was as good as ever. She was just marvelous. And when jazz, when, when, uh, the, when the jazz um, bands would come through town, did you guys, did you guys have to trek from Long Island? Was, was there more, did, did you have to be very specific on who you were going to see? And Oh yeah. We would schlep in from Long Island to the city very often. Uh -huh. uh, and as you said, we'd have to make a night of it. We couldn't yeah. just, it involved a meal to sustain us for the journey from Long Island. <laughs> uh, we needed to eat something and we'd meet friends usually. And it was fun. It was a lot of fun. There wasn't much of that where we lived. There may right. be more now, but there wasn't at that time. Did you drive in or would you take the train in? We drove in. Yeah. We drove in and I took the train in if I had to do anything. And I always use public transportation in the city until recently, buses, uh -huh. subways, and it was terrific. And that's one of the things I love about the city, that everything in the world can be delivered to your door and you can get almost anywhere in the city by public transportation. There, um, there was, Woody Allen said this once many years ago where he said, uh, he's like, I don't, I don't go to the Chinese restaurant at 3 a.m. I just like to know it's open and I can yeah, well, unfortunately, that's not always true anymore. I know. Yeah, that's and that's that's it's it, it was really um, like discombobulating to me because, you know, I live kind of in a hip area of Los Angeles at the moment. And just to see everything boarded up and nothing in, in an area where there's usually a lot of stuff going on. And then to, and then to drive to, I you know, I would drive to a dentist appointment and to just see the freeways empty. I'm just like, I've only seen this when Will Smith is walking around with a gun and no one's on the streets. <laughs> I'm like, this is, this is the apocalypse. It's right now. Yeah, I know. And, and all the restaurants around here have managed to get outdoor tables. And I've only gone out twice uh, since, since I've been double vaccinated following yeah. having COVID I've been double vaccinated and now was advised by my doctor just this morning that I better get triple vaccinated. Yeah, the booster that's that should be coming up. I'm I'm ready. Yeah. I'm like whatever you need to do, stick it in. Let's go. I know. I know. <laughs> I really feel it's so important. I wish everyone felt that way, but you can't force this on people. Yeah, yeah. The um how, how, uh, you, so see I've grown up in California. So the, so I don't know much about winters. What's it like growing up in an actual winter? What's it like growing up in seasons? Well, I still remember a couple of moments from my childhood. One, where we couldn't open the front door of our house 
because it was packed with snow. And another time my father coming home from his little shop in Brooklyn, walking home with paper bags tied with ropes to his feet uh, over his shoes because it was a blizzard. And I loved it when I was a child. I mean, who, what child doesn't love snow, snowmen, uh, snowball fights, sledding. Uh, it was hell when you had to drive though. Yeah. That, that became really difficult. And I remember feeling pure happiness for my children when a snow day was declared. And for me, I didn't have to get dressed and try to get them to school. We could all hang around in our pajamas and rejoice. <laughs> what was it? What was a, uh, what was a snow day? What were the activities in the house when there was a snow day? Well, when I was a child, when I was the child of the household, my father and I could play Monopoly for about 12 hours straight. <laughs> now, did you I, win or did he win? Who, who would win in those situations? I, th- I now suspect, and I can't, of course, ask him anymore. I now suspect he let me win more often than not. Ah. <laughs> but he had the patience for that. He had the patience to play with me uh, and amuse me for hours on end and to read stories aloud. And, and also, um, I remember... This is off the topic completely, but I love comics, the comics in the newspaper, going to the movies. We lived right around the corner from a movie theater in Brooklyn, where I grew up. And there was a matron in the children's, there was a children's section. There was this large woman in a white uniform who ran around with a flashlight so there could be no funny business going on in the children's section. And so my parents felt it was okay for me to go there as long as I never went to the bathroom. And that was... <laughs> That was pretty much of a problem, but I love the movie so much that I would just hold it in until I got home. And um, that's, I think, where I first got my sense of story. My father, my parents talking about their lives. There was a lot, though there weren't many books. It was a great oral tradition at home. Uh, even the card players spoke about their early lives, how most of them had emigrated from Russia and how poor they had been when they came there. And somehow they made it sound delightful. It must have been terribly hard. And this was during the depression anyway. And yet there was so much laughter. I remember this. So I, I heard a lot of laughter and I realized that even the darkest moments could have something funny in them. And I think I carried that over into my writing. And even before I could read, going to the movies and hearing stories and seeing stories on the screen and looking at the panels in a comic strip and figuring out what everybody was doing, like the cats and jamma kids who were stealing the pies from the windowsill or um, Dick Tracy was solving something. It was all very exciting to me. And I think that was the beginning that the oral tradition, the comic books, the movies were all the beginning of storytelling for me. And of course, my father would lie down at the foot of my bed at night and tell me the stories. And I always felt that they might end differently one night, you know, that Goldilocks would not, you know, get away from the three bears. Little Red Riding Hood might have been eaten by the wolf. Who knows? I mean, it was possible. And half the time, I never even heard the end of the story because my father would fall asleep in the middle of telling it to me and I would kick him. And he would come startled awake and I would say, 
what happened? Tell me what happened. And now I've carried this into my old age, my own old age. I want to know what happens. What happens it, next? It's, um, I remember, it's funny, the older people, when, when we were young and we're kids, the older, the older family members in our lives who like actually showed us attention and, and had the patience. And I remember the ones that didn't have the patience and I never connected with them, but, but the few that sat there with me as a kid or, you know, even growing into my teens where it's, you know, it's hard to relate uh, when you're in your forties or fifties to a teenager who's got, you know, hormones bouncing all over the place. And, and, and it's just like, but they, they just, they would say the right things and they would have like, they would just be open and listen. And you just that comfort feeling that, Oh, this, this person's taking care of me, but I don't know how. And then now I was even talking about it with my girlfriend last night. I was just like, I wish, you know, I'm 52 now. I wish I can talk to my grandparents who were in their fifties now as the man who I am, because I think I understand them more. And I would love to have that. It's just so weird. That generation gap is, is something that can't really be uh, fixed. It can't. And, um, but I think you still carry some of the wisdom or some of the affection that was given to you when you were a child. And I think you carry that throughout your life. At least I hope so. Yeah. At least you remember them. Yeah, they were really important to me because it was, you know, those times when it's just really rough and there's that one person that kind of has your back. You know. Right. I grew up in a three generation household anyway. So and there were aunts and cousins who lived nearby. So every Saturday and Sunday, the kitchen was filled with people um, and the women were always doing each other's hair and polishing each other's nails. And and the men were listening to the ball game. And I was running back and forth between them, getting my hair done and listening to uh, the boys of summer. Did you ever smoke cigarettes? Oh, I did, unfortunately. Yeah. For a long time. And my father did too. And I had uh, in our household, I had an aunt who lived with us who smoked copiously. So there was all that secondhand smoke, but also I learned to smoke because of them. And I started at a very early age and I quit when I was 37. I realized one day this is going to kill me. And I quit cold turkey, which was not fun at all. There were no nicotine patches. Um, I didn't have any help with it. I threw a carton of cigarettes into the wastebasket and I didn't empty the garbage for a week just in case I changed my mind, but I didn't. And then there was, was there a point where you were rafing through the trash of various neighbors three weeks later going, there's got to be one no, cigarette no, around here I, somewhere. No, no, I never did that. <laughs> but Tony, I did dream about smoking. I mm-hmm. often dreamt that I was allowed to have a couple of puffs or a whole cigarette. Yeah. And I guess this is a wish fulfillment type of dream. And uh, there's nothing that I've been able to substitute for it. I'm, I'm not addicted I was, I feel I was addicted to nicotine and I'm not addicted to anything else now except good writing that I love to read. What about coffee? What? Drink coffee? 
I do. Um, I have one glass of iced coffee every morning. I do love that. I can't call it an addiction exactly. It's a pleasure. It's a ritual. Yeah, it's a pleasure. I usually do I drink it while I'm doing the Times crossword puzzle and timing myself. Oh, you time yourself. And the, now the Times crossword puzzle gets harder and harder through the week, right? Yes, until Saturday. Sundays is not harder. It's just larger. It's okay. not harder. Saturdays is very difficult. And Thursdays is complicated. There's usually a trick to Thursday's puzzle. And every Thursday and Saturday, because my kids uh, no longer subscribe to the actual physical paper. I do. I take it in every morning. They get it online and they don't get the puzzles included. So I take screenshots of the puzzles and email them to them on Thursday and Saturday. If I don't do it, they're going to wonder if I'm dead. I mean, that's the only thing I can think of. Can you add me to that email list? I'm not subscribed either. Can you add me to your email list of who you send your the crossword puzzles to? Oh, sure. Oh, of course. Would you like that on Thursday? Oh, yeah. and Saturday, I send them uh, the, the actual puzzle. And also there's something called the spelling bee. Do you know about that? No. What is oh, that? Oh, that's wonderful. It's, it's a real mind bender. It's, um, it's several letters in a circle. And you have to make a word using all the letters. Oh, that's cool. And you can stare at it for hours. And then all of a sudden, Eureka, yeah. Eureka is not the word, but Eureka, you've gotten it. Is, is the Eureka actually an F word? No, no. Eureka <laughs> not the, not, no, no. Oh, not the word in I'll the, do, I thought, I, oh, okay. Do I say something? Is it a euphemism for what I really say? Is that what you're trying <laughs> yeah, to Yeah, yeah. That's what you don't want me to say this unless this is truly taped, right? <laughs> That's fine. I just wanted to get the gist. I have to say, I have to be careful of my language sometimes. I use it in my writing and I may use it if I'm upset or excited enough. I might use some some big words. Well, I think those I think those big words are important because they express they bring in the emotion. They 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 can they can, you know, not all the time. I watch some of these movies and it's just like, really? every other word it doesn't make it special when it's used once exactly that's when it's special exactly and it has to suit it has to fit the context also uh i mean if a kid trips over his shoelace in the hallway it's not it's really not an occasion for that word if a guy is almost killed on the battlefield and he ducks down and he says that that that's legitimate and earned. Uh, and I feel if you use those words too freely, you delegitimize them and they, they lose their power. And I think all words have a certain amount of power. And the minute you overuse them, you diminish that power. On and maybe note. especially curse words. True. Thank you, Hilma. This has been great. Oh, it's been wonderful for me, Tony. And I have your email address, as you know, and I will send you the puzzles. And you will write to me and say, I got it. And then I'll feel terrible because I haven't. <laughs> I hope to make you feel terrible. <laughs> you will say, I got it immediately, but you're not allowed to tell me what it is. Remember. Okay. Himmel Wallitzer on Drinks with Tony. Check out her new book, Today a Woman Went Mad in the Supermarket. And next week on the show, we have Matthew Fitzsimmons discussing his new book, Constance. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you next week.
You're listening to 101.9 FM, KPCRLP, Santa Cruz.